listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. My name is Clark Rockfall, and I am the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Thank you to everyone listening over ACB Radio, as well as those downloading, streaming, and liking via your favorite podcast player. As always, you can learn more about ACB on our website at www.acb.org. So here we are, uh, geez, still January, uh, possibly even the seventh week of December 2020, it may feel like at times, but we are in a new year. And even though it's a new year, we're back with some familiar names, faces, and voices. Seems like the more things change in... Uh, blindness national policy, the more they stay the same. <laughs> and to help drive that point home, I'm joined by ACB First Vice President, Mark Reichert. Mark, how are you doing? Yes, sir. Good to be with you. Great. As well as longtime friend of ACB, Mr. Paul Schrader. Hey, Clark. Spelled Schroeder, but pronounced Schrader. Paul, how are you yeah. doing? I am well. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah. And Paul, I'll start with you. So, <clears throat> Geez, when you last spoke with members of ACB, you were with formerly of the American Foundation for the Blind. You were with IRA, everyone's favorite uh, video assistance service, as well as leading uh, domestic policy for the Vision Serve Alliance. And yeah, and I've shifted again. So I, I yeah, I can't keep a job. Um, I, I, you know, that's the problem. I, I yeah. hear. Tough market out there. <laughs> that or I've had an opportunity to do a lot of things. Um, but yeah, now I'm thrilled to be over at the American Printing House for the Blind. And Paul, what is your role at APH? So I, I carry the uh, title of Vice President for Government and Community Affairs. I'm stepping in following a, a guy who was there for, for 34 years and just really set a standard for, for decency and uh, compassion and caring about the, the education of kids in particular. That's Gary Mudd. Um, and Gary was based in, in Louisville. I'm staying here in the D.C. area. Uh, and so part of what Gary was doing, of course, along with the advocacy in Washington, which we'll talk about in a minute, was a lot of, of the uh, uh, relationship building in Louisville for APH. And I've been practicing how to say Louisville. Um, so I'm, I'm for you. working on it, you know. Um, it helps probably to have a sip or two of bourbon. It just makes you say it better, uh, being the bourbon capital of the world. And so the, uh, so the, the government community affairs is kind of a combination of uh, advocacy for the APH uh, appropriation that we'll talk about, uh, of course, and then uh, the relationship building in, in uh, Louisville. Fascinating. Um, and Mark, you are still the... <laughs> Acting or interim executive director for AER, uh, yeah. Association for Education Rehabilitation for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Did I get that right? Uh, the conjunctions are a little scrambled, but you got the you got the essence of it. Yes. Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. we'll go by AER. That's um, right. That's why we go by AER. You betcha. And you've also taken on a new role as well. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Uh, so, so upon the uh, absence uh, departure of Mr. Schrader onto the APH Green Pastures of Louisville. Um, we, uh, Vision Serve Alliance and AER, 
uh, got together and said, you know, um, this is this is some natural uh, there's some natural conjunctions here between Visions of Alliance's work and AER's work, and so we've announced as of last week a partnership between VisionServe and AER. The long and the short of which is that yours truly serves as VisionServe's director of public policy. So basically about a third of my time is spent working on those issues that are near and dear to all of our hearts, but especially the membership of our the, the two uh, associations, AER, individual professional mem- uh, professionals in the blindness biz, and Vision Service Alliance, of course, their members are organizational members representing just about every facet of work in the blindness and vision impairment. All, all three of us being members, uh, AER, uh, That's and correct. That's exactly right. APHACV and AER are organizational members of VSA. And, you know, hearing both of you talk about education policy, it seems like this is a a great opportunity for all of us and our organizations in collaboration in this space. What do you think will be uh, the focus on education? Here we are starting the 117th Congress. So let's let's just jump into it. You know, where where do you think we we have opportunities in the education space and where do we go from here? Well, so I would say any day that ends in the letter Y is a good day to talk about the Cogswell Macy bill. Um, but we've talked about it for, for so long uh, that, you know, some people certainly have been asking me and I know others have been asked this question too. Good grief. Are we going to talk about that thing again? Uh, and so uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, we do. Our champions in both the House and Senate are prepared to reintroduce the legislation um, as soon as uh, the craziness going on in D.C. will allow. But the truth is, as it always has been, the Cosmo-Macy bill is, is, a, is a jumping off point. It's a springboard into other things. So I think, especially now with a, a new uh, administration, there's no doubt that we will be, while we are pursuing any and all appropriate legislative vehicles for weaving into them provisions that currently live in the Cosmo-Macy bill, uh, we're also going to be working pretty aggressively with this new administration, uh, a new Secretary of Education, and uh, to, to, to address a number of things. And the top, certainly, of my list is taking this opportunity to get what is now 20-year-old public policy guidance from the U.S. Department of Education, branded uh, by you know Department of Ed, specific to blindness and vision impairment, getting that sucker uh, updated. Uh, my standard sort of joke, but it's not that funny, is that that policy document, which is meant to be for, frankly, all audiences, uh, parents, educators, administrators in the education world, uh, that that uh, having to do with blindness and vision impairment, of course, that document, I don't even think it references the internet because, frankly, it's so old. So that's just one of many examples about how that thing is, is totally deficient, and I think we've got an opportunity to do some work. So anyway, those are two of what I'm sure will be several uh, components of our field-wide education agenda. And the other thing I would uh, add on that, Mark's absolutely right that those are two really important areas to be focused on. Um, it's likely, I guess, uh, and we're going to get into this, the the change in congressional leadership, particularly on the Senate side, which, as we all know, will be switching to a 50-50 but Democratic-controlled Senate, which means that uh, Senator Patty Murray becomes very important in uh, chairing the committee that will look at education policy. There's been a bottleneck there on, on higher education policy, which I know, I know needs to get dealt with. And then of course the 
education, special education act called IDEA hasn't been done, hasn't been reauthorized since 2004. That's a hell of a long run uh, for a, a policy of that import to be, you know, not looked at and amended through uh, congressional action. So I think we're all hungry to, to start working on those things. And, and I'm hopefully um, Senator Murray will be able to, to move something out of the, that Senate committee. Well, and maybe a question, if I may, Clark, uh, Paul, for you, uh, clearly you're in, a, in, the, in, the, in the driver's seat with respect to the appropriation uh, that we all care about that APH administers. But uh, maybe using that as a springboard for other, other comments, I'd be really be interested in your thoughts on, you know, I mentioned, so there's Coswell Macy, that's substantive legislation. But what about using the appropriations process? We've got two chambers, both in the, in, in, under the same party's control, with uh, pitching, pitching to a White House controlled by that same party. So presumably this Congress may be will actually be in something more like regular order for appropriations, but maybe you have a different view. I'd really be interested in your thoughts on that. I, I, I would expect so. Of course, it's complicated by the amount of money they have spent and will spend on COVID-related well, that's a really good point. relief and activities, right? But yeah. they're also, you know, presumably, I think we've all heard of President-elect Biden's plans or as he's begun to talk about them um, for, for that. So, But, you know, both of the people that are running the appropriations process on the Democratic side, obviously very experienced senior people. The lady who's running the full committee is the one that's been running the subcommittee that's of most interest to us um, in, in, on the House side, Rosa Bellaro from Connecticut. Uh, so I think we, you know, have a lot of hope and expectation, right, for good, good, uh, yeah. good education and human service policies coming out of there. Excellent. Or spending, in this podcast, uh, we are recording when it is still currently <laughs> president-elect Biden, uh, by the time this airs, he will be the 46th president of the United States, Biden. Um, so as, as Paul referenced, some of his plans are starting to to roll out here. So President-elect Biden has announced a $1.9 billion uh, stimulus package with larger individual stimulus checks and a whole boatload of money for other, other yeah. programs. But Paul, one of the things that I and I guess for both of you, but I'll start with Paul, uh, in a year of a pandemic with so much shifting to online education and e-learning platforms, it kind of goes back to Mark's point that the guidance for teaching students who are blind doesn't even mention the internet, but how important is it, and even more important than ever, for the work that APH does to get those learning tools and materials into the hands of students currently right now? Well, it's very important, and, and it's a, a good point that you raise. And by the way, it's $1.9 trillion. Um, really? Yes, the, with a T. <laughs> with a T. Um, so, you know, we've been ramping up at APH efforts to try to help uh, teachers, parents, students to adjust to online learning more quickly. So we can do a lot of instruction for how to use online platforms and uh, how to uh, provide training and information. What we can't do, and what's been frustrating, is we can't you know we can't change technology products on a dime. Um, yeah. There's a lot of effort again underway to try to to move toward a so-called full-page Braille display, so a Braille a multi-line Braille display, um, which would be huge in any any time anywhere. Exactly. Um, particularly would be huge now. 
Um, but yeah, so I'd say, you know, any, any of the tactile uh, material, any of the, the kind of hard uh, copy stuff has been a challenge. It's just literally a challenge to get it into kids' hands. Uh, but we've been doing everything we can on the uh, virtual side to try to help people best adapt to and learn how to use these platforms. So um, we've been pushing some things that we had in the plans anyway, faster further, uh, a lot more remote learning, uh, setting up this thing called the Hive, uh, which has a, a B, uh, B-E-E uh, kind of ment- uh, thing to it, uh, uh, where we're connecting everything and putting everything in one place. And there's a, a lot of worker bees uh, pulling that together uh, to try to have a lot more information in people's hands. That sounds like that's going to have a lot of sting to it when it's done. <laughs> boom, boom. We're going to put a little honey on it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's got a lot and, of buzz in the field, that's for sure. <laughs> there is a lot of buzz about the hive. <laughs> from, from the AER side of things, what are you hearing from the you know the educators and the boots on the ground about remote learning and education through the pandemic? Yeah, I mean it's 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 all COVID all the time, and uh, you know controversy about. Uh, uh, we we have to do things differently. We are doing things differently. Is this, in fact, the most effective way of doing it? Will the field be led into temptation to keep doing all of it, including perhaps the things that some folks think are uh, less effective or might even be putting uh, kiddos at risk? I'm thinking especially now in the orientation mobility space, right, such that after COVID, we will get through this COVID craziness. And when we do, the question is, Will the field rebound, right? And in the view of some of these folk, some very prominent ones, in fact, uh, you know, the, the, the fear is, wow, this becomes the new normal. And we, because people will want to cut corners, uh, particularly budgetary corners, maybe people are going to feel like even though COVID's gone away, we now uh, have been accustomed to doing things in a way that isn't up to par. So, I, you know, I think there's a lot of concern there. And there's no doubt that we're going to have to tackle perhaps COVID by name, but the implications thereof in any kind of revised policy stuff that we would do. The thing that I typically become uh, exorcised about is that while there's no question that we're, we're all thinking about COVID and worried about it and trying to re- grapple with it, we can't allow COVID to be the defining aspect of our policy work. Just because COVID's here doesn't mean that all of a sudden Kids don't need access to information. That we don't need qualified teachers. All of the same things that we've been dealing with forever are still in play, uh, and we've got to stay focused on it. I think there's no problem, uh, and, and in fact, we'd be derelict in our duty if we didn't make use of COVID to illustrate how all of those challenges are exacerbated by this current situation. But we dare not get into a thing where the only thing we think we can accomplish or focus on right now in the short term is some COVID-specific policy change to the detriment of those longer-term issues that can't be ignored anymore. To that point, Mark, the the three of us and our organizations were very active last year uh, making that very point to the Department of Education when they were seeking to have um, IDEA waivers. So, you know, you can provide some flexibility on the administrative side of of IDEA, but you know, don't don't dare go anywhere near providing free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. As we have a a new incoming 
Secretary and Department of Education. Paul, Mark, I'm curious what you all think the, the priorities will be on the administration side in the education space. I certainly, um, everyone always talks about full funding of IDEA uh, yeah. when, you, when you talk about disability education issues. Uh, in Secretary of Education nominee Miguel Cardona uh, from Connecticut has said that. He himself has a strong public school background. I think he's the commissioner of education now in Connecticut statewide, but he comes from a, a public school background. Um, the the, the uh, education secretary that just left, Betsy DeVos, does not, um, and quite avowedly does not, has a different approach or a different thought about the way education should be focused. Um, so, so I would, you know, I would certainly imagine that that's going to be, so, so full funding of ideas is going to, you know, constantly be sort of the, the goal that everyone pushes. And then, you know, we don't quite get there. I haven't heard a whole lot about other issues. I mean, discipline, of course, always comes up from the disability community as a, as a heavy emphasis. I think, you know, I would say personally, one of the things that I'm hoping we can sort out better is some of the services that the, 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 the range of services this is a little wonky, but the range of services that are idea and, and the kids that are served on so-called 504 plans, exactly. um, the, the old, the older disability law. Well, it's not much older, but the, the law that requires uh, non-discrimination and carrying out of programs. Um, idea has a much richer set of services, of course, tied to it. Um, and, I think that's created some challenges for, for some of the kids with disabilities, including kids with vision loss who maybe sometimes get shuffled around in between those systems and may not get as much under 504 as they should. I don't know if you agree with that, Mark, but it, I don't hear many people talk about that, but I do think that's a that's an important area. I, it, it, I love the fact you raised it like that. And I, another topic that is absolutely uh, appropriate and will be talked about as we try to promote this policy guidance revision piece, and it is also a topic that is addressed head-on in Cosmo Macy from the standpoint of essentially saying to states as part of your state plan that you maintain with the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, uh, that you need to tackle this question head-on in black and white and articulate the criteria for how you distinguish between kiddos who need specialized instruction, which should be the standard under IDEA, versus reasonable accommodation, which is the standard under uh, 504 that Paul's talked about, and and to talk through when is it appropriate for one and not the other, uh, and in the policy guidance piece, uh, equipping anyone who reads that thing, uh, but especially parents, with the tools they need and the, you know, the right vocabulary, the magic words to be using in advocating for their kiddos' need for special instruction if, in fact, that's what they need. So, absolutely, it's got to be front and center on our on our agenda. And as ACB maps out the, the content for our legislative seminar coming up the third week of February, as well as our policy agenda for the 117th Congress, uh, education will certainly play a role in that. But we're also looking at some other broad areas of policy to continue the work that we've been doing and as well as expand in additional areas. So voting rights has been huge in 2020. We've made great progress. Uh, we didn't eight- have any issues with voting though this past year. As I no, not one. No, it's, <laughs> it's because everyone was able to vote electronically. Yeah, it all worked <laughs> out well. Uh, but already the, 
the House Democrats have reintroduced H.R. 1, the We the People Act. This is a bill that does allow for expanded uh, voting rights, as well as you know, online voter registration. Um, however, there's one sticking point that I think is you know, still a bit problematic for the disability community is that it uh, is strictly paper ballot voting. Um, so no electronic ballot return, which we've certainly heard from folks would be uh, very helpful going forward. Just curious it, with your learned opinions and experience. Do you think that the 117th Congress is uh, ripe for voting rights reform? I, I think they may think that they are. Uh, whether they whether they can do it without resorting to, you know, fisticuffs on the House or Senate floors, I think is a, a funny but not so funny uh, open question. I mean, I, it, it's just be interesting to see once we get through this business of whether there is going to be or when there is going to be uh, a trial in the U.S. Senate having to deal with a second impeachment of a president, and then you want to move forward with other agenda items, how many people really want to hit head on uh, and spend time on relitigating? Because you know, gosh darn well, that's what people will do mm. when any legislation comes up having to do having to do with voting, voter suppression, all the stuff that I think some of us would care very deeply about. It just anytime that comes up, it's just opens up that scab. The other thing I would add, I mean, yeah, it's a politically fraught issue because obviously you've got all the mechanics around voting, who votes, how they vote, but then you've got all yeah. the issues around voter registration, polling yeah. place, and, and issues that they, they tend to divide along some political lines, obviously. Mm-hmm. The thing I would be wary of, uh, particularly for ACB and, and for Vision, Vision Serving AER too, um, is what's happening at the state level and what states are going to do in response to the pressure from those who felt um, uh, abused by the changes that were made in 2020. Whether whether and how they got made is not is not really my point. That they felt that they were made in some way yeah. that that, dis, that uh, uh, didn't help them politically, that one party or the other. And and so there, you know there's going to be pushes at the state level to restrict. Uh, easy absentee and other forms of voting that some of us do find to be helpful. Yeah. I, I, you know, I particularly enjoyed the argument that some were raising in Pennsylvania that people hadn't handwritten the dates on their envelope. I'm like, for God's sakes, are you kidding me? I mean, how many ways can you disenfranchise people? Exactly. Another area that I know that um, you, have- hey, Clark, I'm sorry. Let me. Uh, to Paul's point, which I think is a really important one that we should emphasize, I mean, I can remember uh, the days uh, in the early 2000s and 2000s when the disability community itself was really kind of torn asunder. Uh, mm-hmm. And we don't need to n- name the names, but we some of us know them all too well and know and love them. Uh, but, uh, you know, who are ordinarily you know, shoulder to shoulder, you're never going to break us apart kind of people who all of a sudden, when it came time for, well, we have to verify these election results for heaven's sake, and there must be a paper trail absolutely dividing the community in half, uh, where people saying paper was absolutely essential to protecting civil rights, and another huge segment of which some of us were a part saying, you're locking us into, you know, 19th century approaches to this, when, by the way, that shuts us out completely. So it. That's just a, a powerful, I think, illustration of how the voting issue can really slice and dice us, and we tend to get 
uh, we're, we, we tend to be collateral damage in those debates. Mm. Well, I, <laughs> I've not been doing this as long as either of you. That's a, a humble brag. But I am thankful that it seems like technology is also progressing. So there are technologies yeah. out there now where they are accessible and allow for the electronic return of the ballot back to the voting precinct where it can then be printed uh, by the election workers before being officially cast. So you still yep. have that paper trail, right? Yep. But it it doesn't make the process more difficult for the individual voter. And it's just to illustrate, I think your point earlier, Clark, about how what technology technology can give and take us away or whatever. Right. And, and yeah. so that the, the, the capacity that, or the lack of capacity that technology had 15 years ago or more uh, for sure ended up making, you know, bad facts make bad laws, they say. And, and so, you know, uh, we got to make sure that, uh, the law keeps up the technology and the technology keeps up with uh, the rights that people have to enjoy. And speaking of technology, uh, in the past few Congresses, whether it's been in the form of the ADA Notification Act or the Online Accessibility Act, and yeah. I've already forgotten the name of the one already introduced here in the 117th, but there's been leg- legislation introduced that would require website accessibility and it would provide businesses a time period upon being notified that their websites or digital assets are inaccessible, a, a, per- a period of time to cure those websites and receive that feedback um, without worrying about pesky litigation. My question to you two is where do you see uh, website accessibility going in the 117th Congress or with the new administration? I certainly hope that uh, we're all uh, going to push DOJ as quickly as we've got somebody to push to say, um, <laughs> yeah, be, uh, off color for a minute, get the damn regs out. Uh, yeah. We have regs for web accessibility. They need to get done. They need to, to set the standards. Everybody knows what the standard is and, and there's no disagreement about it. Really, I mean, they were ready to go, uh, as I understand it. So that can get done fairly quickly, I hope, and, and head off a lot of this concern about not knowing what we're building to from a web accessibility standpoint. As for time frames and, and you know, uh, times to cure, um, look, I mean, the reality is I think everybody knows that just because something's digital, it doesn't change overnight. It's, it's, it's like building a, a, you know, a ramp doesn't get built overnight. These things do take time to change. But there has to be a clear indication that there's work being done. Um, you can't just say I need 180 days and take 179 and not do anything. Um, hmm. You know, so uh, there's and there's interim steps that can usually be taken. Um, I think that that you know will help people know that look, you're sincerely working toward toward the answer. At least that's 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 Paul's view. It's not really. I mean, APH doesn't really get involved in this issue per se. But I mean, that's that's where I come down. Yeah, really interesting stuff. I, I have to say, I am not uh, completely closed-minded to the idea of trying to push some aspects of what needs to get done in this area through the legislative process. Not, not totally closed-minded to it, but I have. I'm. Uh, I'll just admit it, and we are on the record, literally and figuratively. Um, 
I have a deep prejudice against uh, moving federal legislation that in, in a sort of comprehensive way tries to address technology, website accessibility in particular, where the ADA is concerned. I, there's no question that we, there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of technology accessibility that needs to be done to tackle technology arenas that are not necessarily within the scope of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, especially if they're not public accommodations or state and local government uh, programs or services. So I, there's no question that more work generally needs to be done, but the notion of touching the Americans with Disabilities Act, I think some people sort of uh, very in a partisan way think that Republican members are anti-ADA and the Democrats love the ADA. So, of course, now that the Congress is all controlled by Democrats, uh, gee, I guess we must be safe, and this is a fine time to pitch federal legislation amending the ADA in a you know sizable way where website accessibility is concerned. I think it's a profoundly naive thought, and we've seen it. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, we've seen it in the past where Democrats, probably with you know all the best of intentions, are nevertheless responding to their constituents who are like uh, so many members up there. Uh, you know, are approached by the business community who say, hey, we've got all these crazy lawsuits out there and people are jumping on us. We need some clarity here. Uh, And so trying to, and and in trying to do that, they're threatening to amend the ADA in ways that none of us, I think, from a civil rights perspective would ever support. Uh, So I think it's terribly dangerous to to have have an ADA-focused, sizable piece of federal legislation introduced in an environment which, though it may be a bit friendlier than we had, uh, you know, we cannot be assuming that just because someone has a D associated with their name that somehow they're, they're, they're in lockstep with us on our approach to the ADA. Well, and I would add this. I don't need to be the small business lobbyist, but it doesn't take a, a really smart lobbyist to know the first thing you'd say when you went up to, to argue on something like this is, man, we have gone through all this COVID trouble. We are lucky to keep a few employees around. The last thing exactly. we need is, is you guys putting a web accessibility thing on us. We need time. We need a break from that. We're trying to, we're trying to, we're just trying to survive. And exactly small right. business has a huge, <laughs> huge footprint. Uh, and, and as you saw, there were a few Democrats that got on board one of those, um, the, Absolutely right. the, the web bill. I mean, you know, one or two, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think the small business line, uh, is gonna, I, I'm sure we're going to hear something like what I just said at some point. Yeah. I think so too. What do you think an appropriate reason to amend the ADA would be if you, if Mark Riker could, you know, rub his crystal ball, is there any reason why you think the ADA should be amended here in the 117th Congress? I think Mark well, I actually to- has a crystal ball. I, I, not only do I have a crystal ball, but I'm wondering if I really need to be on camera while I'm rubbing it. I, I, hopefully I can just say <laughs> no. that I am. Yeah, I'd say no to that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I, I <laughs> that's a different type of podcast altogether. <laughs> um, I, 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 so back in the day, and uh, uh, in case people who are listening to this haven't pieced it all together, so of course Paul and I both worked for the American Foundation for the Blind, and Paul, for his sins, had to supervise yours truly for, <laughs> oh, hell, how long was it? 14 years, whatever, long yeah, time. Uh, like yeah, but so so Paul will remember this all too well. I think, in fact, I had to do this. I had to be uh, whipsawed in front of my boss at several meetings where yours truly was pitching at the time when the rest of the disability community uh, 
was uh, uh, pitching other amendments to the Americans with Disabilities Act because of uh, poorly decided Supreme Court decisions. And some of us are trying to make the point, hey, uh, the ADA belongs to all of us. And while we're at this, okay, sure, maybe the things we're concerned about are not Supreme Court decisions, but they sure are lower court decisions that we're not making it clear that online-only places of public accommodation, of which, of course, that's just exponentially, you know, that was 15 years ago when I was talking about this, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't clear that they were covered. Well, things have changed significantly in the case law and I think expectations and everything else. So I, I don't know that I necessarily today would have made this today would make the same pitch for the need for a federal legislative remedy to even that issue as important as it is. Is it still an issue? Sure. It depends on how you look at the case law, but it's a lot better position today than it was back then. But if you say to me, so, you know, what would be the thing you'd amend the ADA to do? Sure. In principle, you'd want to amend it to make it stronger, expand who it can reach. Uh, and little, you know, small, little in terms of the quantity of text on the page, but obviously significantly uh, important provisions could be added but you can never have that conversation without thinking about the environment in which you try to pitch those things. When we were talking about those amendments 15 years ago, it's a different Congress, a different time, uh, and we were riding, or we, uh, Paul and I and others, were trying to ride the wave of the disability community's uh, fervent desire for the need to fundamentally amend the ADA because of what the Supreme Court had done. We don't have that wind at our backs now at all. You know, the, the other thing I would say is it's not really so much legislative, but as you noted at the outset of this, Clark, I worked for IRA uh, during the time between AFB and coming coming back to the blindness field, with, uh, nonprofit blindness field with APH. Um, and now here at APH, we, it, it, this is relevant. We have something called Good Maps that uh, spun off of Access Explorer. The, the fact that the regulations around signage for the ADA specifically say directional signage, color-coded information, directional maps are not uh, do, do not need to be made accessible. The visual information does not need to be made accessible was accurate for its time because there wasn't a solution. It didn't, it, it exactly. didn't make sense to say they should be required to be accessible because there wasn't really an answer. Well, now there are some answers. There are apps that are beginning to provide that kind of information and wayfinding mm-hmm. and guidance. And so um, that needs to be looked at. It's not, a, it's not a legislative requirement. That's something that I think we could probably look at with the Access Board and Department of Justice as a, um, a, a, a good area for conversation about can we update regulations in some of this area or at least guidance uh, so that people know there are some solutions that can be offered. That's a great idea. That's yeah. a great idea. So, and on this topic, you both also played an integral role in the passage of the 21st Century Communications Video Accessibility Act. Often, never heard of it. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. Our, our beloved CVAA, which just turned 10 years old. Um, so, God. on the subject of laws that potentially need updating or technologies that were unforeseen when laws were written. Um, you know, I, I look at the CVAA and now the widely available streaming services um, that are in the market that aren't covered by the law. I also think about the accessible user interface provisions. What are some other areas of technology or innovation that, uh, frankly, folks haven't thought of yet? 
You know, oh, something boy. that, uh, well, I think a couple, you, you, you referenced a couple. So certainly the audio description requirements, um, a, a strong enhancement of that is, is for, for um, how much is covered and the platforms it's covered on would be very much in order. Um, and I think a lot of us, you know, would, would be excited to see that it, it, it would, it will not be easy um, yeah. to get that yeah. done. The, uh, of course, the app ecosystem was not uh, nearly what it is today in 2010 when this was being developed. I think some of us saw where that was going, but, it, yeah. and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, sometimes jurisdiction questions really bedevil these things, but not having clear uh, requirements around uh, accessibility in, in the in the in that really critical space the app space is is essential um i don't know social media is another interesting area that you know again wasn't really a huge uh deal in 2010 but but obviously is now uh, for sure and paul uh, alluded to this uh, as he sort of in passing but it's a whopper and that is what the the, the cbaa is very much federal communications commission focused as and, and rightly so. Uh, but if one was going to write a non-ADA but nevertheless fully comprehensive bill having to do with technology accessibility, you'd want to tackle issues that are within the jurisdiction of other federal agencies or, frankly, are not clearly within the jurisdiction of any one federal agency at the moment. You'd, you'd want to tackle it all. Part of the challenge we have with a CVAA 2.0 kind of idea is, okay, let's start with the assumption that we're talking about what is or should be within the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. And I remember uh, at the very early stages of the Communications Video Accessibility Act discussions, so by that means, what, 2006, 2007, in other words, in the dreamy, dreamy, heady days where you were considering every wild and crazy thing, including a private right of action if people didn't do the right thing. So, you know, that's a total, total dreamer uh, territory. We were talking about the fact that, well, anything that transmits, uh, you know, uh, uh, digits, uh, essentially it's a radio, right? So any, it sh- shouldn't we basically be saying uh, since the founding, uh, whatever, the establishment of the Federal Communications Commission in the 1930s, whatever, and the whole life of the Communications Act of which the CDA is a part I mean, isn't regulation of radios, what they can do, how the signal is tra- aren't isn't that anything that does that, isn't that within the span of the of the commission's writ, or shouldn't it be? And if that's the case, doesn't that mean that all of those gizmos that have to do with uh, telehealth, right, uh, remote monitoring, et cetera, anything that transmits should be touchable by the, the, the FCC. And of course, the answer to that is, you know, you've got to be kidding, say the lobbyists on the other side, and they'll give you all the reasons why that's crazy, and and they can do it quite well. Uh, so clearly, that was not the approach that we took. But it seems to me that some kind of a, if we're going to start down the road of a CBA 2.0 kind of idea, we are at the early stage now where we can start to dream through the impossible dreams now. And then, and then out of those uh, discussions where we say, you know, get real, uh, devolves down into some pretty actionable things. And I would say, you know, you had some things like uh, the fact that uh, software is, is uh, to a good, a sizable extent, covered, uh, you know, uh, for certain purposes uh, in 
the CVAA originally, you know, people were sort of saying, oh, well, now, come on now, software stuff. But no, once you start a, a theoretical framework and then work through the things that are, uh, you know, dead on arrival, have the most opposition to them, and you start to whittle down, uh, you can make some other things happen. I know, Clark, I'll wrap this up by saying that you and I have talked about the fact that I, I may need to go back and, and remind myself and do more homework on this whole issue of the primary purpose or the primary function of a device if, you know, that allows two or more humans to communicate with each other. I think there are, you know, it's pretty clear that a multi-function or multi-purpose device can be within the scope of the CVAA, but it's, it's not crystal clear. And the extent to which that, that has been shown to be the case has been the result of uh, you know, uh, challenges that the FCC has had to had to wrestle with. That line is not very clear. And I think there's no question that moving forward, all devices are going to be multi-purpose and not necessarily be created or used with the primary purpose of allowing communication. It'll be a refrigerator or it'll be this or it'll be that. And I just think we need to think through that more. And, and that's been a slow recognition, right? As we move, you know, when we first started talking about technology accessibility, it was in, in, in this context, it was in the, in the run-up to the 96 amendments, amendments passed in 1996, right? People barely conceived of uh, yeah. mobile internet access devices. Most people didn't think that, you know, they didn't have them uh, for the most part and certainly didn't see that, that coming in the, in the short run. So um, the, the, the telephone voice telephone grafting everything onto the voice telephone has really been the, uh, it was changing some by 2010, but it's really still where much communications policy is centered. The only thing I would add, you know, sort of um, Mark and I worked with a colleague who used to say to put the hay down where the goats can get it. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things that I would love to see us advocating for is uh, uh, essentially a technology program that puts smartphones and, and other technologies for sure, but smartphones are the most revolutionary, most, to me, the thing that can separate uh, blind and low vision people being able to access information independently most quickly um, is getting a good, a, a decent quality smartphone into people's hands. And, you know, a lot of folks can't afford them. There are, there are some programs around the edges like Lifeline and, and uh, technology assist programs and people looking at tax credits. But um, a lot of folks who are low income, I, I think one of the single most important useful things we could do is give, get a smartphone in their hand, teach them how to use it and let them go to town. Well, and, and maybe this is a, Awkward, but I think appropriate transition because I know clock. I know clock. The clerk is ticking. Is what I was about to say. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I think you get my point. Uh, I, I like to hear uh, clerk tick. Um, we, uh, it, you know, for especially people who are older and experiencing uh, vision loss. Uh, I, you know, I think the assumption is grandma and grandpa uh, might, uh, you know, not be the most uh, technologically savvy. Therefore. Um, and why do we? Uh, why are we thinking about them? And don't we need to kind of dumb down the technology? Maybe that's true on some levels. But I, the truth is, as as time goes by, people are going to be aging into that demographic, and those people who age into it are going to be more. They're certainly going to be demanding more uh, of the technology than, let's say, uh, our parents or grandparents uh, do do today. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we're t tackling certainly. Uh, with AER and, and Vision Server Alliance, really Vision Server Alliance leading the charge, uh, at least corporately or coalition-wise, uh, to really tackle the whole array of issues having to do with aging and vision loss is to remember uh, the role of technology 
in that, um, making sure that Medicare is providing access to certainly low vision aids, but perhaps a, a wider array of technologies, making sure the training is there and the use of those technologies, training that is appropriate to older folks who may have other dexterity, you know, uh, other issues like just dexterity or cognitive things, et cetera. But I, you know, I think the whole world of uh, aging and vision loss related advocacy is so critical. And uh, as is, frankly, a, a topic which we probably have no time to talk about. And funny thing how it's how, how, how we don't uh, in the whole voc rehab uh, <laughs> space. Um, you know, I, I think we need to be thinking a lot about um, how we can do a better job of putting technology in the hands of folks who need it um, and not just getting into this sort of, I, I think there are far too many places in this country where the assumption is all a blind person needs is the latest and greatest gizmo and you dump it in their lap and then, you know, that we've solved the problem. And hopefully we can do a little bit better job of actually providing really good quality or in- amped up quality folk rehab services. I, I just wanted to flag those yeah. issues and see if Schrader well, has anything to riff on those well stated, but as Clark is ticking away here, um, <laughs> oh no, we've got time. Go for it, Paul. Okay, good. Yeah, well, it'd be uh, uh, it'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the American Printing House's work in education of children who are blind or have low vision. Yes, you uh, would. I thought perhaps you'd want to go. <laughs> <laughs> which which we've been doing under federal statute since 1879, um, uh, and Mark and I weren't around then, so we're not that old, Clark. Um, you know that provision has, I think, led to a strong support system in place, right, for kids who are blind, which has just been terrific, um, children and teachers and parents now, uh, to support up to K-12 and really pre-K um, children and throughout the country. And so, you know, APH has this appropriation. But the truth is, we know that we're not able to uh, you know, we're, we're, what do we estimate? It's under $300 per child, uh, you know, all told. If you, you dump all the money on the table and you, and, you, and you put the chairs around the table of the kids who need it, it's, you know, roughly 300 per, per child. And that doesn't get us uh, a device. It doesn't necessarily get us a textbook. Um, fortunately, we're, you know, we're able to shift things around and, and, and hopefully keep the kids what they need. But we know that even APH, which I guess is my point, which has this solid appropriation that we've been able to increase. And we've got tremendous congressional support and tremendous support from the community and our partners. Even so, uh, it's not meeting the complex needs of children, let alone if they have dis- disabilities other than blindness, but even just blindness and vision loss. So we know we need we need funding there. And and Mark's absolutely right. I mean, older adults, it is criminal how little service we provide them. Uh, and we know that's you know where vision loss is going to most likely occur. And I mean, everybody knows these answers. We know that the rehabilitation is important for this this community. We know that technology and technology training is important for this community. And yet. We're providing, I think in this case, what is it, less than $10 per eligible uh, person uh, of, of, of potential service. And money doesn't buy you everything, but it's sure a way of measuring what we're, what we're able to do and what we're able to provide. And so that older blind support, however we do it, whether it's through traditional aging programs or, I mean, the traditional appropriation that's there for older blind or expanding aging pro- programs that serve other uh, older individuals and incorporating uh, services for, for people who are blind in there. We've got to address that. Uh, you guys can talk more 
about rehab than I can, but Mark and I surely have our thoughts on what needs to happen for adult vocational rehabilitation, and we do need changes um, for sure. But I, the older services for older blind is, is an area that just it, it makes me shake my head. Uh, Mark and I were there. We were literally there on 9-11 advocating for that program, 9-11, <laughs> We were. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, AFB put some time and effort into raising that, that dollar amount and it, and it hasn't gone up much since. And that's, that's kind of a, in 20 years, that's a shame. Anyway, off my soapbox. There, there's several things that you've both said on this, uh, this broad sweeping topic that have really stood out to me that, um, the need for additional funding for the specialized training, um, whether that's for students or older Americans, students of all ages, shall we say, right. Exactly um, right. but also funding for the technology that they could use to live more independent lives in their, in their communities. Uh, I think back to my childhood growing up, every piece of technology had a specific purpose and use. You know, everyone had those large console cabinets where you had your VHS, your tape player, your CD player, your, <laughs> you know, your TV antenna, your cable box, your TV that didn't have speakers in it because it was just a TV, you know, and so on and so on. Um, and then it's like everything converged into, into one. And the smartphone is the, the best example of that. But now the, the smartphone's just becoming, <laughs> uh, I know APH has it, you know, copyrighted and trademarked, but it's becoming the hive. It's becoming the center of that smart ecosystem and everything else connects and talks with the smartphone. Um, so one thing that I think we, we really need to focus on is it really doesn't matter what the next technology is, but as long as it has that accessible interface, um, I think that that'll be a great way to increase access down the line. You know, and I had a, a call and I was working with a guy earlier this week in the uh, middle of nowhere, Maine. Sorry, Maine, but you have some really rural parts in the middle of the state. But he was able to hook up his his smartphone via an app and wireless connectivity to his you know, new rowing machine and receive data from his workouts. Or how many people now can have their smart watch, either do contactless paying, mobile payments, uh, you name it. So we have all these peripheral devices that are connecting to our smartphones now. And this isn't saying anything about augmented and virtual reality in the future, but there's still some, still some gaps that remain. You know, these, these peripheral devices, we need to make sure that they will be accessible. And there's still... You know, we talked about uh, communications, two-way communications. Well, currently, the rules only cover text and audio communications. Right, and right. The term interoperable video communication service that was included in the CVAA has sat there undefined for 10 years. Um, so imagine the world now if we did not have access to accessible video communications or our friends in the deaf blind or deaf and hard of hearing communities um, didn't have access to cart captioning or video uh, relay and interpretive services. Um, so certainly things to be mindful of going forward. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't have you guys quickly touch on it before we go. We've, I mean, technology and navigation and transportation are all converging. Right? Paul, you've already touched on how technology is 
and will continue to make maps and what used to be strictly visual displays more accessible. Uh, but it also seems like we're on the kind of riding a building wave for accessible access to transportation information and maybe even one day highly autonomous, you know, artificially intelligent, independent modes of transportation. Um, so do you all see opportunity to build on that here with the administration in the 117th Congress? And I know, Paul, Paul, I would say yes, uh, absolutely. I, it's, it looks like the, the Biden administration has certainly talked about autonomous vehicles and, and focusing on transportation as well. Um, you know, frankly, from my perspective, one of the more interesting candidates from the uh, uh, Democratic uh, debates and, and efforts in 2020 is, now, is, going, is the nominee for Secretary of Transportation. Let's see what he can do. Um, I think that should, should prove very interesting. Uh, and I, it, it, my guess, my sense is there's just a ton of agreement around um, accessibility for autonomous vehicles and, and their design. I do hope that there is a strong uh, uh, component and continued support for, or I should say growing support for public transportation. Public transportation has taken a huge hit in COVID. Uh, it's, it's in, you know, we all see it here locally and with Metro, it's, it's in danger. Um, and this is a time when I hope advocates can really come together and, and vis- vigorously support uh, good, good, strong, accessible public transit. While we're doing that, build in some of the wayfinding and information supports that we know are now available. Well, and I don't have really anything to add to that except maybe to pitch back to Paul this idea because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, you know, the, 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 the cliche, but I think there's truth in it, is that in a new presidential administration – uh, you really, yeah, the guy or, or lady uh, is elected for for a four-year term with the option for for another four, uh, but it's really an 18-month long term uh, because the reality of it is in 2022 we're going to have another election and that God help us. I think we have to all start amping up our medications in advance of that uh, for sure uh, to, to cope with that. But I think in this first 18 months. A lot can happen if all the royal we's can get together and make it happen. Transportation, any stuff having to deal with infrastructure improvement, uh, even this whole thing, you know, coming now full circle on education. Uh, higher education has been loitering as a topic that uh, Congresses previously uh, have simply failed to be able to get their act together on. Theoretically, with two chambers under the control of the same party, maybe they'll be able to pitch that to the president, but it's going to be kind of a, uh, orgy is the only word that's not a great one uh, to, to, to use, but there's going to be a flurry of activity in these 18 months and how our community uh, budgets our energy to tackle the things that need to get tackled and have the best possible chance of getting done in this 18-month period is, I think, really going to be a challenge, and, and, and we all vie for the attention of all of you who are listening to us right now, uh, when we send out our little alerts and everything else, I, I think we really need to be thinking about how, how as a community, we budget our advocacy efforts to make the most out of this window. And in, in some cases, maybe even less than 18 months. I mean, we hear, especially right. in the bubble, so much about the first 100 days. Right. Yeah. I think the hardest thing as advocates in, in, in whenever, especially for an administration change like this, is the temptation to want to throw on the table 
the dream list and to really get exactly. that done. And then there's, you know, probably, and, and I mean, I think for, for Mark, for all three of us, we probably live in both of these worlds, right? So one part of our world is, man, there's stuff that we really want that this would be great. Let's, let's create a whole new program. Let's get together and get this done. And then there's the other side of our head that says, the only thing we can really do right now is to make sure the programs that we have are shored up in good shape, grow a little, um, because that's what we can do with this. We, we have, you know, we're, we're coming in and I, I'm not trying to make this too partisan, but we're coming in where when, whenever there's an administration change, there's also that sense of we've got to clean up all the stuff they did before. And it doesn't exactly. matter which party it was. And part of that means putting the programs that are working and, and are, that have strong advocacy communities around them, putting them on a good footing and getting them back in order and getting them forward. And, and, and I think, you know, we live this, for example, in the older blind services area. Should we be, and, and Mark and I even sort of lightly tangled, I don't think we disagree, it's just a question of priority. Should yeah. we be fighting to increase the 32 or $33 million that's in that program for older blind, or should we be throwing all caution to the wind and saying, we need a $3 billion program, exactly. uh, and it's going to look like this, it's going to have 10 titles, and, <laughs> and the yep. truth is, both, both are true. Exactly. Uh, and and that's the tough thing as an advocate is trying to trying to get what you can without uh, missing an opportunity to maybe get a little more. If, yep. I guess that's what it comes down to. Well stated. So, ah, uh, we're just hitting our stride here. Maybe we should have gone. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll come back and do this. You know, we should come and maybe after a hundred days, come back and see. Do a check in. Happened. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so long as we don't get confronted with all the predictions we made that totally blew up in our face. <laughs> I think we were careful to weasel a lot of any. <laughs> I think that is true. A lot of hedging, hedging words in there. Yeah, we, we've been hedging out long enough to know how to do that. That's so. right. Paul and Mark, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation here today. And we will follow up with you here in the 117th Congress and check in and see how things are going. Sounds like fun. Can Thanks, Clark. It's been fun. And to everyone listening, again, thank you so much. You can look up ACB at acb.org. You can shoot us a message at advocacy at acb.org. And as always, keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.